Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. After a departure from tradition last week, we're back to the quasi-mandatory two guests in two separate interviews today. We'll be hearing from the anthropologist Samar al-Balushi on the coup in Niger and the broader politics of the region, and from the political scientist Joanna Wiest on the history of scientific explanations of human sexuality. First, another look at the coup in Niger and the general atmosphere of political unrest in France's former colonies in Africa. Several weeks ago, we heard from Caitlin Chandler on the topic. Here with more is Samar al-Balushi, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. Before becoming an academic, she worked for several international human rights organizations, and some years ago, she was even a producer and host at Pacifica's New York affiliate, so she's something of a colleague. Her research focuses on the African front in the U.S.-led War on Terror, as the post-9-11 era of endless war is often called. Quite impressively, she has a piece in the consistently surprising teen Vogue on the U.S. military's role in Africa, notably AFRICOM, the Africa Command, which was founded in 2007. Samar al-Balushi. So let's start with the coup in Niger, which has, I guess, fallen off American radar, but still important. People are throwing around the phrase reboot democracy. Is there anything to that? What's your understanding of what went on? Maybe I'll just start off by saying that I really welcome this opportunity for an extended exchange with you about these recent developments, because the tendency within the mainstream news outlets is to look for experts who can reduce what are, in fact, highly complex and multi-layer dynamics uh, in many of the countries that have experienced coups in the last couple of years into easily digestible, simple sound bites. And I think it's also true, sadly, of media outlets on the left that are often looking to confirm pre-existing theories about U.S. imperialism rather than to wrestle with the actual dynamics on the ground. And for me, it's, it's not about letting the U.S. off the hook, but about maintaining a level of curiosity and inquisitiveness about the shifting configurations of U.S. empire alongside shifts in the broader geopolitical landscape. So we can take Niger as the latest example of these kinds of shifts. And as you were alluding to, what we're seeing is a crisis of Western hegemony in the region, uh, primarily of French and U.S. rule. And alongside that, we're seeing a crisis of democracy in the sense that the formal institutions of democracy in, in the form of elections are proving to be totally inadequate when it comes to addressing people's basic needs. And so what we saw in Niger, much like we've seen in other countries in the Sahel that have experienced coups, is a remarkable degree of popular support, uh, which I think is surprising to many Americans, but it's popular support that is stems from a deep, deep feeling that the status quo is simply not sustainable. And by this, I mean that people's basic everyday needs are not being met and that the leaders who have been deposed from power have been unable for a variety of reasons to address those needs. People hear the word coup and they expect firing squads and arrests of opponents and all manner of colonels looting the central bank and that sort of thing. They don't seem like episodes of popular sovereignty. Is that really an adequate understanding of what these coups have meant? In this case, what the military leaders have done in many of these countries is to tap into what they see rightly is popular frustration with the status quo. And in doing so, they've employed uh, very strategically the language of anti-imperialism, of anti-colonialism, and it has worked in their favor thus far. And for that reason, we are not seeing up until this point, again, you know, because many of these are, are fairly recent transformations, especially in the case of Niger, we're not seeing popular pushback to large degrees against the military juntas. Now, it's entirely possible that that will change as people recognize that not only things are not necessarily changing for the better, but they could be, in fact, relying on all kinds of crackdowns and abuse of power. 
What exactly is the nature of the anti-French feeling? I'm sure it's different at different levels of society, but uh, is it really genuine anti-colonial move, or is there is it a cover for a lot of self-interest? Uh, how do you read that anti-French rhetoric? I think it entirely depends on what class of society you're talking about. At the popular level, that sentiment is quite legitimate, quite deep-seated, and informed by long-standing memory and experience of French exploitation in the region dating back to the colonial period and extending into the present day, particularly when it comes to France's exploitation of natural resources in the region and the uneven ways in which um, Nigerians have frankly not benefited from uh, general kind of trade and military partnerships with the French. Now, when it comes to the leaders themselves, that's where I think we should have a room for healthy skepticism in the sense that they will be evoking this terminology of anti-imperialism and not necessarily walking the walk when it comes to actual change. Yeah, I believe one of the articles you suggested I read referred to this as a cover for their own incompetence or failings. Correct, correct. Yeah. It becomes tricky because I think for folks on the left in the U.S., there's still a certain nostalgia for the days of anti-colonial sentiment and struggles for liberation in the 50s and 60s. And so we too might be easily swayed by this discourse of anti-imperialism. And we, I think, perhaps even more so than people on the ground in the region who have, you know, a long-standing basis to be skeptical of their leaders, we too need to maintain a certain level of skepticism ourselves. You cautioned against uh, having a reflexive analysis of U.S. imperialism uh, in uh, looking at these uh, coups and conflicts. Um, what do you mean by that? What's the mistake that people make in doing that? I would say probably the biggest mistake is to focus only on U.S. actors. And when we think about the fact that the U.S. is relying more and more on African actors on the continent, both African militaries, African police, African civil society organizations, because we have to account for the vast range of soft power that is a part of U.S. empire, then this demands that we pay attention to the histories and politics of these African countries and African actors on the ground. And I think there's a tendency within U.S. anti-imperial circles to be exceptionalist. We have our own form of U.S. exceptionalism in focusing only on U.S. actors. And when it comes to Africa, we've benefited tremendously from the work of investigative journalists who have attempted to shed light rightly on the covert dimensions of U.S. empire across the continent and the deliberate effort on the part of the U.S. to operate in the shadows, to evade scrutiny, to evade accountability. But then the flip side of that is this kind of fixation with exposing the secret. And Jody Dean has written about the kind of downside of this fixation with exposing the secret in the sense that we become so focused. In the case of Africa, the focus becomes, where is the latest AFRICOM military base, right? And now with the coups, it becomes who did the U.S. train, right? And the downside of that is it, it takes our attention away from the broader political and economic forces that are at play on the ground that demand equal scrutiny. And when we think about the number of people whose lives have been affected by the U.S.-led war on terror, it compels us to look beyond the seeming official battlegrounds of places like Somalia to places that are seemingly peaceful, like Kenya, and that's where I do my work, where hundreds of people have been disappeared, hundreds of people have been killed by U.S.-trained police forces, but that don't, you know, those kinds of day-to-day -day forms of violence simply don't garner headlines because they don't meet the kind of norm of what we're trained to look for in the form of the U.S. drone strike or the U.S. military base. Now, the coup in Niger comes as the latest in a series of, what, a half a dozen or so across the region or more over the last few years. What are the commonalities? What, what's driving um, this wave of coups? Of course, every country has its own specific historical, uh, political, economic dynamics that are warranting of far more attention than I can give them here. The two common themes that I would really stress are 
the crises of capitalism and imperialism that are feeding into the decline of Western hegemony in the region. And what we've seen is an investment on the part of the U.S. and France over the years to cultivate relationships with African security forces through trainings and other initiatives. And what's becoming increasingly clear is that neither the U.S. nor France can comfortably predict the outcome of these investments. We saw in the case of Niger that acting under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland flew to Niger in the immediate aftermath of what the U.S. was reluctant to call as a coup, hoping to reverse the events and hoping to sit down with a military leader who was a part of the coup, who the U.S. had cultivated over the past perhaps 15 to 20 years. And Victoria Nuland went expecting that this general would be willing to cater to U.S. interests and U.S. demands. And she was quite surprised when, in fact, he said, no, you know, (laughs) we're actually we're not interested in catering to you. We're interested in catering to our own needs. So this is coming, I think, as a as a shock, especially for U.S. policymakers. The second, uh, if we kind of um, step back again to the broad factors at play, as I was saying earlier, is a crisis of democracy in the formal sense. So when it comes to the substantive dimensions of democracy that should be bringing about positive change in people's lives, that is not happening. And here we have to really foreground the outsized power of international financial institutions in preventing democratically elected governments from uh, being able to meet the needs of of people. And so you have accumulated effects of decades of neoliberal reform that have made life harder and harder for the average person in each of these countries. The fundamental problem being that Niger and other countries, its neighbors, are just too poor and the state institutions are too weak to do anything very effective. So they can hold all the elections they want, but can't really accomplish much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so now time will tell, even if in some of these countries there is a shift to democratic rule, whether in fact that will make a difference. I'm speaking with the anthropologist Samar al-Balushi. What about blocks like ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States and the African Union? Um, They supposedly uh, sometimes discipline these coups. Um, What are these organizations like? Who dominates them? What's their effect? What role do they play? So I think the challenge facing these broader regional bodies is a lack of uh, financial autonomy, even though in theory they are African institutions, African-led, and have their own internal decision-making apparatuses. The continued reliance on funding from outside powers, whether that be the European Union, the United States, China, and other actors, Uh, inherently means that they're going to be constrained and shaped by the interests of those powers. Now, one thing that is worth highlighting here is that the African Union represents an outgrowth of a predecessor, and that is the Organization of African Unity that came into being soon after African governments received independence. Now, the Organization of African Unity was very, very clear in its early days, and uh, thanks to the thinking of some of its early leaders like Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, maintained a very clear principle of non-intervention in the affairs of other African states. And that changed roughly around 2002 when the African Union came into being as a replacement of the OAU. Now, that shift was hugely significant for what we've seen happen over the course of the last 20 years, and we can closely link that shift to two dynamics. One is the U.S.-led war on terror, and the second is the broader shift at the international level towards this notion of, quote-unquote, responsibility to protect, whereby governments should no longer turn a blind eye to forms of violence in other countries. And in fact, it's their responsibility to intervene. And so since that time, the African Union has explicitly embraced intervention in the name of this broad rhetoric of quote unquote security. And that is what enabled, for example, a number of countries to intervene in Somalia. And that is what in many ways became the basis for the regional body ECOWAS, Economic Community of West African States, to announce that it had a role to play in restoring, quote unquote, democracy in Niger, 
uh, ostensibly through military intervention. And so what we've seen over the years is a shift within internal African politics towards an embrace of military intervention and more broadly an embrace of military solutions to what remain political problems. And that really, when studied more carefully, demand political solutions rather than military ones. The uh, record of these humanitarian interventions is not very impressive. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's not. And and when you look closely in many instances, you find that by the time an intervention took place, it actually was too late in the sense that the bulk of the crimes had already been committed and the emphasis was more on image rather than on substance. Um, that's number one. Number two, we've also seen all kinds of abuses committed by intervening forces in many of these countries. And inevitably, whoever is involved in an intervention has their own interests uh, that are shaping the dynamics on the ground. The U.S. has been deeply involved, as you mentioned, since the war on terror, 20 years now of uh, expanding involvement in Africa. What's the scope of it? Uh, what's the intention? And is the jihadi threat anywhere near as uh, large as has been advertised? When the war on terror began or, or was declared, there was no extensive, quote unquote, jihadi threat on the African continent. We had, as you recall, there were attacks at the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in East Africa in 1998. And that was when Al-Qaeda kind of announced itself to the world as a global network. But for the most part, there was no sizable militarized entity operating in Africa. And the sad reality is that those entities have actually emerged in response to U.S. interventionism on the continent. Now, what's unique about U.S. counter-terror dynamics in Africa is that the U.S. has tried to learn from its interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq in the sense that it is determined not to place U.S. troops on the ground in uh, direct combat. And so the emphasis instead has been on uh, relying on African troops. And it is in this context that the U.S. has invested billions of dollars in training and equipping African security forces across the continent that it hopes will be prepared to protect U.S. interests. And we've seen the rise of new programs, such as uh, there's something called the 127E, where in addition to the kind of standard State Department funded programs that are designed to build general capacity of African security forces, the 127E program is designed to create special forces, African special forces, that are able to conduct U.S.-led missions on the continent. And so again, the idea is that the U.S. doesn't want to be putting its own troops in harm's way. And if anyone is going to be doing the dying, it's going to be African troops rather than American ones. A bunch of the recent coups have been led by U.S. trained officers. What's the meaning of that? That's correct. It's tricky because we see quite often in the media that there's an attempt to draw a direct link between the fact that these coup leaders were trained by the U.S. military. And of course, that is a contributing factor, but we shouldn't necessarily think of it as the primary factor, given, you know, as we've been talking about, there's so many different dynamics that are at play. But with that said, what is significant about these trainings, uh, there are a number of things that are significant. The first is that African governments in general have learned that in a geopolitical order dominated by logics of security, the primary way to access funding is through the, the door, right, of security. And so what we're seeing is a growing embrace on the part of African governments of militarized solutions to political problems. The second is that the amount of money that starts to flow in once you have declared yourself to be a quote-unquote partner of the United States has a distorting effect on decision-making in each one of these countries. And what we've seen is a growing um, level of competition within African governments and including within security establishments for access to those funds, for access to the trainings. And the competition has bred conflict, right, on, on multiple levels. One, 
We've seen some leaders abusing the power that has been vested towards them in the name of counterterrorism to crack down on political opponents. And two, what has unfolded is a tussle for power. And in the case of Niger, what apparently was one of the motivating forces for the coup was that some of the military officers had been accused of corruption. You know, again, this comes back to all the money that's flowing in. Uh, ostensibly to buy military supplies, etc. And when, if and when there's an, an effort to account where that money has been spent, it's been found that it's been embezzled. Now, in the wake of that, the democratic, again, quote unquote, government has been weighing the pros and cons of having some form of accountability for the disappearance of, that, of those funds, right? And knowing that the risk of holding some of these military leaders accountable comes with the potential that they would do exactly what they did, which is to remove the president from power. So it's these dynamics that I think we need to pay attention to, because it's precisely these kinds of internal forms of competition that are leading to uh, what we're seeing in some of the countries in the region. And the U.S. security uh, presence there, do they work with the French? The U.S. works with the French, but I think that, um, for one, it's very difficult actually to track many of the details of these cooperative arrangements with the French. I think the U.S. is also trying to be very careful about the degree to which it's seen to be working with the French, given precisely the level of anti-French sentiment in the region. And I think now, my guess is that there's potentially some tension between the two powers in terms of how to proceed, given that the U.S. would want to be distancing itself rather than be seen to be aligning itself so clearly uh, to protect French interests in the region. Yeah, there seems to be a deep French investment, both monetary and political, but also even emotional, it seems, in their presence in, in Africa. Is that a fair characterization? There does, but I, I really shouldn't speak to that. It's not something that I follow so closely. But I think to point to the emotional investment is something really worth reflecting on, right, given the reluctance to confront the, the colonial legacy. Okay. Uh, and finally, um, you and others have used the phrase uh, second struggle for independence, perhaps generationally driven one. Uh, could you expand on this idea? Yeah, so I think that what we're seeing, even as U.S. policymakers now are increasingly demanding more forms of transparency vis-a-vis U.S. trainings, given that the media has been so focused on the connection between trainings and the coups, what we're seeing is that change is not going to come from those in power. It's not going to come from the democratically elected governments in many of these countries, and it's certainly not going to come from U.S. policymakers for whom we might at most expect demands of transparency when it comes to U.S. military spending, when it comes to U.S. military trainings, rather than a push to overhaul the system itself. And so what I think we're seeing is that it's going to be the people on the ground who are enacting change. And even though it's unfolding in ways that are not necessarily what we would expect, right? It's not taking the form of revolutionary uprising. And instead, it's taking the form of a military coup that is supported by popular forces. Nonetheless, it does seem to represent something new. And time will tell where things go. That was Samar al-Balushi, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at UC Irvine. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
know some of Narina Pellet's Everybody's Gone to War from early in the global war on terror. And now sex, or more specifically, the history and politics of biological explanations of sexuality. Biological explanations of social phenomena always make me nervous. They often serve a conservative function of making socially developed norms seem determined, inevitable, immutable. As I believe Judith Butler said somewhere, biology is often invoked to bind anxieties aroused by critique or uncertainty. But as Joanna Wiest argues in her new book, Born This Way, just out from the University of Chicago Press, they've been very useful in fighting for the legal rights and cultural acceptance of sexual minorities, gays, lesbians, trans, and non-binary people. The Born This Way line is a way of fighting the rights fears that gayness and transness are transmissible, though why, if their way of life is so marvelous, do they imagine it to be at constant risk from more appealing options? But what if increasing openness about different ways of living are giving people more freedom to flourish? In any case, here's Joanna Wiest, whose day job is assistant professor of politics at Mount Holyoke College. At a time when there's so much anti-science lunacy circulating, around climate and COVID in particular, but you know you can pick up any rock and find more, one wants to be very careful about training a politically critical eye on scientific claims. How do we sort this out? You say scientific claims. What, what's the difference between scientific and scientific? Oh, yeah. I love this as a place to start. When we think of the born this way idea, I call it a scientific idea in part because it's using the language of science. It's using something that looks like the logic of science to say that we are very certain that we have ideas, that uh, we know that there's a gay gene, or maybe there's something about the brains of trans people. And I call that scientific, not because we don't know that there is any sort of biological phenomenon happening with any of those things, but that biology is the determining factor in what it means to be gay or trans or queer more generally. And we should say at the outset that this stuff is just not really settled, really. We just fundamentally don't know exactly. I mean, we've got some good ideas, approximations, but, you know, it's not at all settled as a matter of classic science, science or social science or anything. Yeah, that's definitely true. So a couple years ago, in 2021, these geneticists did the largest genomic analysis of sexual orientation to date. And what they found after looking at the genomes of something like half a million people is that they have a guess that biology determines maybe 8 to 25% of a person's sexual orientation. Uh, and then when they probed deeper, they could find locations in the genome for something like less than 1% of that 8 to 25% of variance. That kind of amounts to uh, basically saying that we don't have any good scientific idea about is there a genetic heritability for something like sexual orientation. When did the scientific study of the varieties of human sexual attraction emerge? Something that we might identify as the modern scientific study of sexuality and gender could be traced back to the 19th century. And there is really where we start to see some of the first arguments about what it means to be gay or what it means to be homosexual. And so you get, especially in Germany, folks like Carl Ulrichs making the first born this way argument, saying that maybe there is something biological here. Uh, and importantly, that that should lead us to think about some civil rights reforms. But then you also get folks who are using a biological perspective to pathologize what it means to deviate from things that we know today as heterosexuality or cisgender. Uh, and those can be similarly biological in the way that those arguments are framed. Richard von Kraft Ebbing, also in Germany and gets taken up in the United States during the late 19th century, he's going to say that having this homosexual predisposition is extending from something that's gone haywire in a person's nervous system. We might think of it as this Lamarckian scientific logic of its day. There is biology there, but it's also culturally mediated. Kraft Ebbing thought that the ills of modernity were causing people's sexual orientations to deviate from what was presumed to be the norm. And this kind of continued on. The pathology model was very popular through the mid-20th century. And my story really begins in the United States, where we see the first mainstream organized gay and lesbian movement on a national level start to contest this entwined notion that queer people are sick and that 
they do not deserve civil rights and that they deserve to be beaten out of nightlife scenes by cops and arrested for cruising and losing their jobs and a lot of it because they are such a dangerous menace to themselves and to society more broadly. During the 1930s, there was a fluorescence of gay culture, the Washington branch of it, encouraged by the New Deal. With the post-World War II backlash against the New Deal and the associated rise of anti-communism, McCarthy and his crowd, oh, is linked to pinkos and queers, came a parallel anti-gay crackdown. That gave rise to the early homophile movement, and I like the way you use that somewhat antique word in the book. Could you talk about that early movement? I prefer using the accurate term for that era. Folks called themselves homophiles and homophile activists, in part as a reaction to the term homosexual, which they rightfully saw as a medical term and a medical term that was used to justify coercive conversion therapy treatments, as well as these uh, attacks from the realm of politics. And so these homophile activists were some of the first gay advocates to start making contact with reform scientists across psychology and psychiatry, for instance, uh, most famously Alfred Kinsey, but others like Evelyn Hooker. And these folks were starting to probe into homosexuality from a different angle and to make this scientific argument, as Kinsey would, that to be gay is just a natural variation on human sexuality. How did the born this way argument emerge? How and when and where? I see it as a convergence of a few different trends. The first has to do with combating pathology. So over the course of the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, these homophile and lesbian rights activists increasingly make ground both in the realm of civil rights, they win some early victories on behalf of the gay nightlife and bars, as well as some early federal employment discrimination cases. And they're doing so by bringing these kind of reform scientists to court. Well, eventually, those relationships are going to bloom into a fight at the American Psychiatric Association, or the APA, in 1973. So in 1973, famously, we're going to get uh, homosexuality removed from the DSM, this book of mental disorders that the American Psychiatric Association compiles. And then we're going to also see that at this very same time, there is a massive increase in federal and private spending in biological research. And that funding is going to come at a time just as psychiatrists and psychologists and the like have abandoned that idea that to be gay is to have a mental illness. And very soon they're going to start using that funding to go in search of a hormonal explanation for what it means to be gay or a genetic explanation for what it means to be gay. In the early 70s, um, with the explosion of uh, the post-Stonewall activism, there were a band of sexual radicals who really did want to destabilize the whole social order and thought that uh, expanding the realm of sexual desire and coupling and tripling and all kinds of things would lead to a new society. How did that fit into this movement that was uh, probably a little anxious about um, some of these um, irresponsible types? It's important to bring up the gay liberationists, as we sometimes call them, after the main organization here that founds out of the Stonewall moment, the Gay Liberation Front. And this is much more of a new left kind of inflected radical movement. It ends up being much smaller than the more mainstream liberal gay and lesbian movement that's developed around this time. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, we're seeing dissenters within gay rights activism construed more broadly who are saying, whoever said it was up to a psychiatrist to say what my identity is or isn't? This is going to take the form of protests against even reform scientists. And it's this idea that we don't want scientists to be probing our identities and saying who we are. And there are two reasons for that. The one is uh, there's this general sense that we don't want to cede authority about ourselves to any other group of individuals, but also that the gay liberationists are seeing that this kind of liberal argument using science is being used to say that gay people are a discrete number of people. It's just a natural minority within the heterosexual majority. That's really repugnant to some of these radicals who see heterosexuality as more of a social system or a social structure that is linked to sexism more broadly 
and that the idea is, as a gay liberation front activist Martha Shelley would say, we don't want acceptance, but rather we want to rescue the homosexuals that heterosexuals have entombed in their skulls. So that is, we all have this kind of natural propensity to exercise sexual behavior and to form attraction in many different ways. Something about heterosexual society more generally has pushed a lot of that down. As the radicalism of the 70s died down, this and many other forms, we saw the professionalization of this movement that um, really transformed uh, the politics um, around sexuality, right? Yes, definitely. So what I would call the homophile and lesbian movement of the 50s and 60s is going to become uh, the liberal gay and lesbian movement of the 70s and 80s. And a lot of these folks are going to start building the first NGOs uh, that make up the movement today. So we see the origins of the human rights campaign during this period and what is today called the National LGBTQ Task Force and PFLAG. All of these groups are starting to develop at this time. And they are using, again, those scientific relationships that have just been deepening and deepening since they were originally made a few decades ago. The scientists are using this new funding for biological research to increasingly probe hormones and brains and genes. And they're bringing that new research to these new liberal gay and lesbian NGOs and then deploying that new research in civil rights campaigns and cultural rhetoric more broadly. PFLAG, uh, which you mentioned, was quite influential on several fronts. They were, first of all, trying to make the movement safe for families, which is understandable in one sense, but also a conservatizing turn in this movement. And they're actually a little anti-welfare state too, right? Yes, it's so fascinating that PFLAG is doing a few things on this front. They are parents, families, and friends is, is part of their name of what becomes just the acronym later on. And their focus really is on the family and really making that argument that nothing has to change about the nuclear family in particular. We can see this as a very powerful political organizing strategy during a time when we see the budding religious right uh, and their argument being that granting gays and lesbians civil rights is going to bring about the end of the God-given nuclear family. So this is uh, one of the more defensive moves that the movement is going to make at this time. And they will go so far as to make anti-welfare arguments in some of their advocacy. Uh, and so in the book, I recount a PFLAG leader arguing that we need civil rights protections and social tolerance for gay and lesbian youth, for instance, lest they be added to our already overburdened welfare roles. And so we see this is this idea that if we just didn't discriminate, everyone could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be this proper citizen. They're also big promoters of uh, biodeterminist um, arguments, weren't they? Yes, they are going to be some of the earliest adopters of what it really looks like a born this way argument. And so we see during this time, kind of the late 1970s, and especially into the 80s, these activists and leaders in PFLAG leaning very heavily on the born gay idea, which is kind of astonishing because the 1980s are a time before we get the more famous gay gene studies of the 1990s. Uh, but they're finding even the earliest instances that we might be able to find a biological explanation for sexual orientation to be very useful for their strategy at this very early moment. I'm speaking with Joanna Wiest, author of Born This Way, just out from the University of Chicago Press. And then, of course, the 90s, the golden age of the Human Genome Project. How did that influence the, the politics of the Born This Way side of the movement? The Human Genome Project and all of this new spending on mapping the human genome contributes to what the anthropologist Roger Lancaster will call a genomania of this period. So we're all so enthralled with the idea of what mapping the human genome will show us about mankind. Uh, one of the big boosters for the Human Genome Project would say something like, we're going to cure homelessness by mapping the genome. So there's a lot of leaps of logic during this time. But it's also kind of paradigmatic liberal project in that there is this emphasis on all the social ills that can be mapped and solved through studying genomics. But also, it's, it's an ability for a lot of people to make a lot of money because there is a ton of private funding and spending on genomics uh, at this time, tons of federal grant monies. 
And so there's there's clearly this kind of underlying political economic story about how we then get to all of the resources in the same rooms that we need to create a born this way idea. And that's what we see in the early 1990s. We see this geneticist, Dean Hammer, who is going to go looking at X chromosomes, and he is ultimately going to find what he thinks is a marker of some potential genetic heritability for sexual orientation. Hammer is not going to express this himself, really, but he will go on nightly news programs where he is eventually prodded into the idea that what he has discovered is evidence that we are on the route to finding a gay gene. And eventually, because the media is the media and everyone is kind of obsessed with this bioreductive spectacle, we get this proclamation that we've found evidence for a gay gene. This just takes off and becomes the dominant narrative of what it might mean to be gay during this period. How did the re- Christian right react to this, um, this turn towards biological explanations? They really start to form this idea of choice. I think it's important to get the chronology correct here that the religious right is really going to be reacting with the choice rhetoric. And I say that because oftentimes in defense of the born this way idea, some liberal proponents will say, well, what other argument was going to be made against uh, the right's insistence on choice? But choice really comes as a defensive posture during this period. And so we're going to see all of these right-wing organizations like the Family Research Council, for instance, the Heritage Foundation. They're going to really lean on the idea that being gay is volitional and it's a bad choice. And because it's a bad choice, it doesn't need civil rights protections. It's not something like race, for instance. Race is so clearly immutable. It's it's not up to an individual about whether they're going to identify as a particular race when they're being discriminated for being uh, what the other person conceives of them to be. And there's no way to prevent that is the idea here. But to be gay, that's leaning in to discrimination. And there's no reason that we should offer civil rights protections for these people. Yeah, the choice is the choice to sin, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. And and oftentimes there is a religious insistence on choice and it's framed against this scientific idea that queer people might be born this way. Although some religious folks during the period uh, and organizations are able to square the idea that maybe there is a gay gene. The Catholics, for instance, are early on board of making this argument that we're all born sinners and we might be born sinners in different ways. If there's such thing as a gay gene, well, maybe that's just that person's cross to bear. Just don't have any sex. Exactly. Yes. So you, you can be gay. You just have to be celibate, right? This was also the time when conversion therapy was popular on the right. Um, whatever happened to that school of thought? The so-called conversion therapy, uh, which now has a, a different term, sexual orientation and gender identity, change efforts. And advocates today prefer that language because... They want to insist that conversion therapy is kind of an impossibility. One, because uh, we don't think of conversion therapy as therapy proper today. It is a quack practice. Uh, And two, that conversion is impossible is one of the underlying ideas here. When we think about change efforts, change efforts or so-called conversion therapy are kind of standard psychiatric and psychological practice up until a few decades ago particularly in the period when the homophiles are first organizing. But change efforts persist. The folks who are arguing that queer people are queer by choice uh, are still heavy proponents of the idea that, well, we have psychotherapeutic cures for your bad choice, because maybe it's very hard to give up your bad choice. Maybe it's akin to being an alcoholic, for instance, is a metaphor that they oftentimes make and that we can assist you with these kind of uh, change efforts uh, so that you might abandon this poor choice. But they don't really seem to have a great success record. No, it's it, a terrible success record. And over the past few decades, there's been an increasingly more skeptical look internally uh, within psychiatry and psychology. And what a lot of that internal perspective has shown is that conversion is really, really difficult, if not impossible in many circumstances. Even when some of these conversion therapists, one Jerry Davison from the 1960s, he would find from a really early moment is that he could obliterate homosexual desire, but he couldn't create heterosexual desire. 
So was it really a success if we're thinking about conversion therapy? And it seems like no. Folks would would also make moral arguments against conversion therapy. Uh, But there was also this empirical look into the practice to say, uh, how possible really is this? And and particularly when it's coercive, it seems to be that it's it's it has a pretty terrible success record. And maybe even more importantly, it leads to a lot of trauma and suicidality and death. Now, the right has taken a new tack over the last several years. Um, the homophobic bakers only want to be left in peace. They don't want to make your cake and just respect their choices. Is there a born this way a defense against that argument? It's a great question. First off, with the with Jack Phillips and now this Christian wedding website designer who won her case before the Supreme Court to discriminate against queer customers, I think what they really show in some part is the triumph of this really perverted pluralism, where the right is now saying things like, well, we're not going to contest what it means to be gay in the way that folks did by insisting on choice a few decades ago. Uh, but rather, it's just something that's offensive to my own identity and my own identity and my own civil rights, particularly my First Amendment rights to free exercise of religion and free speech, uh, need to protect me from servicing folks who are trying to do things which I disagree with, such as queer people seeking to celebrate their weddings, for instance. I think that the born this way argument is not very powerful against that argument because there's this kind of implicit seeding that, yeah, sure, whatever, you're whoever you say you are. But it's my own perspective as this bigoted baker or wedding website designer to say that I'm not going to serve you because it's antithetical to my own principles and my own civil rights. The trans case, have trans people and their advocates embraced the born this way argument? Is it helpful? Definitely. It's funny because a few decades ago, you would read some criticisms of Born This Way. And one of the consistent criticisms would be that trans people would inevitably be left out of Born This Way. The idea was it's clearly crafted for gay and maybe at best lesbian identities. But trans people, that's never going to work. We're never going to figure out how to do Born This Way trans ideas. Uh, But that was kind of a short-sighted criticism because there are plenty of born trans arguments that make their way into civil rights litigation, for instance. A lot of victories for trans people in the federal courts recently, in the last decade, have been won by convincing federal judges that to be trans is to have a particular gender identity, which is perhaps rooted in our brains. If there is a sort of biological nature to gender, specifically gender identity, uh, then that biological determinant can be thought of as akin to sex. And if gender identity is a biological basis for sex, then judges can say, okay, we can use existing sex discrimination case law to grant trans people rights, even in the absence of new laws that explicitly say trans people deserve rights. So we see a lot of successes here in litigation against restrictive bathroom policies, against some of these early sports bans on K-12 through trans athletes, for instance. So we definitely see the born this way idea being brought to life in trans civil rights litigation. Despite its obvious political and legal utility, you obviously have some uh, problems with the born this way model, intellectual reservations about it. What are those and how do you reconcile the contradictions? Yes. So I think that uh, oftentimes when folks hear me talk about this or read accounts of born this way, they think my argument is people are not born that way, or perhaps even that I'm arguing that this is all about choice. And that's not at all my argument. My argument has a lot to do with pointing out the shortcomings of what the science itself actually has discovered, as well as the particular political projects that the science has been used to advance. On the second point, it's not that I think that we shouldn't rely on mental health professionals to argue against conversion therapy, for instance, and to defend bans on conversion therapy for minors in court, or that we should not use science to contest the idea that being gay or being trans is pathological. We for sure need to hear psychiatrists and psychologists combat those like Wall Street Journal reporter Abigail Schreier with her kind of fringe clinical ideas that she's adopted from fringe clinicians and promoted, uh, such as this rapid onset gender dysphoria idea that social media and untreated mental illness is causing 
all these kids to adopt trans identities out of nowhere, and that it's basically uh, this pathological social contagion. That's all to say, I, I think that there is a strong role for the science to play there, because the science is very good at saying there is no such thing as rapid onset gender dysphoria. And the science is really good at saying that conversion therapy causes harm and a particular harm that we're interested in, which is that we want to prevent suicidality and trauma. And that that all aside, though, the born this way idea does serve this particular liberal civil rights project. And it's one that has a lot of victories and things I particularly celebrate, but shortcomings as well. And that in part has to do with the NGO model of liberal queer advocacy, for instance, like most big mainstream DC-based civil rights organizations. These are really beholden to wealthy donors. They're really beholden to a range of corporate interests. I mean, I've gone to a national gay rights advocacy conference before and was immediately confronted in the exhibition hall by Gilead and Coca-Cola ads. And, and it just really puts it into perspective that this is a movement that can only do so much for so many people. And the movement really benefits, or that particular kind of politics really benefits from the born this way idea, because it collapses a lot of differences among the folks who they claim to support. So for instance, there are many political economic critiques of the marriage equality fights as they were going on, because marriage rights outside of their social and and symbolic significance, were going to disproportionately benefit folks who had a health insurance plan to put their spouses on in the first place, who had assets to protect from an estate tax. And the movement uh, is not able to pursue things like public housing, single payer health insurance, and all sorts of other kind of more social democratic programs that would actually benefit the vast majority of people identified as LGBTQ plus rather than these necessary but more paltry civil rights victories. That was Joanna Wiest, Assistant Professor of Politics at Mount Holyoke, an author of Born This Way, just out from the University of Chicago Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Whoever thought of Behind the News would feature a musical interlude from Lady Gaga. Here's a bit of her Born This Way. Till next week, bye. Superstars. She pulled my hair, put my lipstick on in a glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are. She's 